On November 22nd, 1963, federal judge Sarah T. Hughes hastened from her Dallas, Texas home to Love Field Airport. In the aftermath of John F. Kennedy's assassination, she'd been summoned to swear Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson in as President of the United States. Hughes was a remarkable person, the first female federal judge in Texas history and the only woman ever to have sworn in a president. On that fateful day in Dallas, she crowded into the packed stateroom on Air Force One to conduct the swearing-in ceremony. Standing next to the man about to take on the mantle of, in Cold War parlance, the leader of the free world, was Jacqueline Kennedy, JFK's widow. Situated to Johnson's left as he took the oath, Mrs Kennedy was placed so that the bloodstains on her Chanel outfit would not be captured in the claustrophobic photographs of the event. In the years after being sworn in by Sarah Hughes, Lyndon Johnson led the United States through tumultuous times at home and abroad. As American History 2 returns after our hiatus, this is episode one of our six-part series on Lyndon Johnson's America. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color? Well, a nigger's all right in his place, but they've always been behind us and just tell you the truth. I want them always stay behind me because I never have loved a nigger. And we shall overcome. You my enemy. My name is white people, not Vietnam, Chinese, or Japanese. You my poser when I want freedom. You my poser when I want justice. You my poser when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs. And you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me at home. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. I shall not see, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. A teenager held up a sign, bring us together. And that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset, to bring the American people together. Once again to American History 2. My name is Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, and this time in person, by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mark. It's great to be back after our six-month hiatus, which I think has been refreshing. Indeed. For both of us. Indeed, although I've started to feel the itch. Yes, but your personal problems aside, (laughs) uh, it's nice to be back recording this again in a new format, with a new approach to what we were doing. Yes, I mean, we got together when we we decided to have a break in January to pitch ideas for how we wanted to do things. Um, What we're going to do, maybe for the next year, six months, we'll see how it goes, um, is we're going to first take a sort of series approach uh, to doing the podcast, which we kicked about doing this idea before, but never quite done it. Um, and this first series will probably be over six episodes and therefore over six months and it is entitled uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson's America and amazingly enough I didn't propose this I was the one who has a dog called Lyndon and, and a Great Society poster in, a, in my office this was your idea yes justify yourself well I thought that you know, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson's America is probably a bit of a, a glib way to categorise. It's a good title for it. And we'll be going through uh, six episodes, starting with this episode, The Ascent, uh, all the way through to the sixth episode, The Legacy. 
Uh, and we're not going to be looking at just Lyndon Johnson. This isn't going to be great white man history where we just look at a president and what he does and his ideas and actions and policies and all that kind of thing. We're going to be taking a very broad view of the period in which Lyndon Johnson was president, what happens in America in that period, what happens to American people. And we'll be looking at a diverse range of figures. Of course, Lyndon Johnson's going to be part of that, but we'll be looking at people from all different parts of American society, from different uh, parts of American politics, all sorts of different perspectives in order to give a, a nice overview of what happens in Lyndon Johnson's America and really, I think, the, the legacies of that time for the modern era. Yeah, I mean, in, in essence, we're almost sort of stealing what Robert Carroll has done with Lyndon Johnson, whereby he sort of uses Johnson to look at a host of other things in American society. Only, this podcast is not going to be over 200 hours long, which is how long it would probably take you to listen to all four of uh, Carroll's books. And Russian it's not books. going to take us the rest of our lives no, to no, record no. it. And we shall not be going into the minutiae of Senate policy. This is... It's just sort of, I mean, Johnson has this life where he encounters so many people and then he happens to be president. And what I'd argue is one of the most interesting times in American history. And we kicked about the idea of doing a 60s podcast before a series in the 60s. So in mm. essence, this is how it was. We're doing it in a back doorway. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if there's anything... And, and I mean, the, probably in the future, we might be able to turn to, to getting guests back on and everything again. We just felt we wanted a slight change for now. Um, and, uh, and then we'll see how this series goes. In essence, it's going back to, in some ways, what we enjoyed doing in the very early stages of the podcast, two friends having a conversation about history. And it's been brilliant. I, you know, take my hat off to all of our guests who've all been fantastic and made huge contributions. The podcast would not have got to where it is without them, but is, is coming back to this. Two friends having a conversation about stuff in American history. So without further ado, Indeed. I think we should begin. So as I said, this first episode is The Ascent. How does Lyndon Johnson end up in the presidency. Where does he come from? Who is Lyndon Johnson? Why Lyndon Johnson? And what type of America is he growing up in? Up in. Yeah. So, Mark, your uh, PhD thesis, and hopefully to be published over the next couple of years, book looks at uh, the Republicans and their responses to Lyndon Johnson's uh, programs that form part of the so-called Great Society. And we're going to be coming to that in future episodes. But where does Lyndon Johnson come come from? How does how does Lyndon Johnson get involved in politics? What kind of politician is he before he becomes president? He is someone who really just works his way up from the bottom. You know, you've ever had that expression where you know someone's going for what is a pretty rubbish job, but you say to them to make them feel better, oh, that's you get a foot on the ladder. Yeah, that's yes. you get a foot on the ladder. John Johnson begins as an aide. You know, he begins this in, I mean, he's been before that, he, he is a teacher, um, and that, that's sort of his main occupation before that. But he really gets a foot in the door in, in, in Washington through becoming so an aide. When, when is he born and where does he come from? He's born in the, the Texas Hill Country, um, in, uh, on the outskirts, well, not the outskirts, a bit away, especially in the days before cars were, were common and, and roads were common. They'd be quite far away, but is the nearest city's Austin. Um, basically, so much as the capital of Texas, his dad um, was a member of the Texas Senate, I believe. It was either the Texas Senate or the Texas House, I think it's the Senate, and um, was a really sort of upstanding and admired individual in this really small town, uh, Johnson City, that, that, that Lyndon Johnson's from. 
um, but his dad is one of the earliest, uh, one of the victims of um, the the big depression that hits the farming sector in America way before you get the yes, depression. Yeah. Um, and the, with the onset in 1929, American farmers are hit sort of the 1920s yes. when all the demand for World War One dries up, and his dad is ruined by this. And um, the Johnsons are sort of sort of loving hand to mouth. Um, and his dad is sort of becomes a laughing stock of the town. And, and when's Johnson born? So Johnson's born in 1908. So as a child, he's growing up during the era of American involvement, non-involvement, then involvement in, in the Great War. Mm-hmm. He's he's growing up during the, the Wilsonian uh, period, then into the 1920s, as you pointed out, the era of agricultural depression in the United States. A bunch of administrations such as Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, that aren't really talked about very much outside of academic political history uh, circles. So, but he is, he's coming of age in the era of the Great Depression. So what is his involvement with, with the Great Depression, with American politics of that era, of the New Deals, of Franklin D. Roosevelt's efforts to try and Bring relief, reform, and recovery to the American people. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the one of the interesting things that I find about Johnson is the fact that he is all in with the New Deal. Um, Johnson is, I mean, I mean, FDR is one of his main political heroes. Um, he actually has access to to Franklin Roosevelt. Um, Johnson is legendary for how well he used to suck up to people that were in power, and FDR was one of the ones he sucked up to. Um, and, and indeed, Franklin Roosevelt, while Johnson's still a young man, uh, will appoint him to head one of the New Deal programs, uh, the Texas branch of it, the National Youth Administration, which was all about employing, yeah, you know, youths who couldn't find work or giving them training yeah. and whatnot. So, so Johnson is, is, as I said, he's sort of an exception because most Southern Democrats, they're Democrats, so they have to be loyal to FDR, but they don't like him, or they, they really don't like his New Deal. They're suspicious of the growth of federal power, um, because you know the the idea of the South and the states' rights and everything that goes back all the way to pre-Civil War times and its links to slavery and all that. So they don't like it. Johnson has no problem with it. Uh, Johnson thinks the New Deal is great, um, and and so he's he's very much. An exception in Texas politics. There are a few other people that support the New Deal, but probably none as gung ho as Lyndon Johnson. So he, in the 1930s, he's heavily involved in the New Deal on the ground, staunch supporter of Franklin D. Roosevelt and the, the ethos and practice of the New Deal, which is heavily contested, yeah. particularly in the American South. What is uh, Lyndon Johnson's relationship with race, race issues in the the Jim Crow South? Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> Johnson is, is well known as, in this era, as being racially liberal in the sense that he, when he was head of this National Youth Administration branch in Texas, he made a point of including African Americans and Hispanics in a way that no other Southern branch, uh, at least I believe no other, maybe, maybe there was the odd one, but Johnson's is a sort of standout for racial inclusion in a way that these projects often because sort of Franklin Roosevelt's deal with the devil was that to get all these programs passed, the New Deal programs passed to try and help people, he had to still let the states retain a lot of the power to run them. Um, so that the, the South 
southern senators would vote with them and they'll block all these measures. And so in a lot of ways you have, say for example, Mississippi running its program and just going, oh, well all the all this money we're getting to run these programs, essentially for all the poor people here, we're just going to give it to white poor people. Um, we're just going to use it for those ends. And some things we're going to try and block giving any money to poor people at all, we're going to try and just use the money for ourselves. Um, but in, in Texas, when Johnson takes charge of the National Youth Administration there, they have a much more inclusive program. Now, this will be sort of Johnson's last act of being seen as in any way racially liberal for a while. Um, as soon as he's elected a congressman um, and then a senator, he is going to hide that side of him. Um, but it seems to... There's plenty of evidence to show that Johnson was never was never part of the South in terms of the views of racial um, of racial hierarchy um, and whatnot. He always seemed to have a, an affinity, at least for, or, or just not see the, the race issue in the same way. But he does, and this is one of the, the criticisms you often see about Lyndon Johnson, he does frequently use yeah. racist epithets about, yeah. specifically, particularly about African Americans. Mm-hmm. And he particularly uses them when he is speaking to Southerners. He is trying to ensure you know, that he's one of them, um, so don't be scared of me. Like you know, I I will represent the South. And Johnson's just—I mean—you can't excuse a lot of the language he uses. Um, and, and I don't mean to do that in any way. Speaking just now, but he makes it clear that he, when he's a congressman and, a, and he's a senator, he represents constituents that are racist, that very much believe in segregation. Um, and so he believes that he'd just be an idiot to come out and do anything that support any civil rights measures, support uh, like even lynching bills that we're going through um, at this point, because he's just like, well, I'll just get voted out um, in the next election. So there's literally no. So he's using it in a very pragmatic way, um, and and he saw that ways he'll be racially liberal as long as it doesn't ruin his political career. So, so let's talk a bit about his, his political career. When and how does he get involved in electoral politics? Because he's been part of this, the New Deal administration. But how does he come to elected office and when does this happen? He, he gets elected to the House in uh, 1937. And he stays there until 1949. He doesn't really like being a congressman because you're one of... 500 odd people don't really have any power. Lyndon Johnson, as Robert Carroll has made incredibly clear in his four volumes, is all about power. And in the House of Representatives, it was hard to get any, so he was always looking for a way out of it. And he eventually succeeds um, when he's elected to the, to the Senate in the, the controversial um, election of 1948, the one that will forever brand him with the epitaph of landslide, landslide Lyndon, um, which, which is a mocking term for the fact that Johnson essentially stole the election. They, they, they waited until all the votes had been tallied and all the votes were announced. Johnson was behind by a small amount of votes and then lo and behold, this county there's a box found that has not been announced yet, um, which has names of people who are written in alphabetical order signed with the same pen and who all voted for Lyndon Johnson and it pushes him over the top um, and he, he wins that election in 1948. And, and it's kind of interesting you, you read accounts of this and essentially People were, everyone in Texas was doing stuff like this. You know, it's a bit wild westy in terms of politics, but Johnson just took it to a whole new level. So just to, just to be clear, Johnson did commit, or John, the Johnson campaign committed oh, yeah. electoral yeah, fraud yeah. in that senatorial election. Oh yeah, and it's not, 
it's not really, it's not debated by anyone. So, Johnson comes into the Senate having been in Congress for quite some time now, over a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he comes into the Senate in 1948, round about the same time as the Cold War is really yeah, becoming. Let, let, let's off Johnson. I think. Well, I mean, the, the because, I mean, you can, I mean, there's, there's various ways to discuss the Cold War. What do we mean when we talk about the Cold War? Broadly speaking, we're talking about the tension between the liberal democratic capitalist world led by the United States and the communist world led by the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are splits and fissures and fractures and these things are not monolith, but for the purposes of our discussion, let's define the Cold War in those terms for this period. So he comes into power, senatorial power, almost at the moment when the Cold War is really kicking off. Does he? Uh, what, what does he do? But what is his attitude towards... You know, America's foreign affairs in terms of this emerging Cold War. I mean, as we're, as we're going to discover through the podcast, Lyndon Johnson, I mean, you might push back on this because I know you have a certain thoughts about some things he does towards nuclear policy during his presidency. He's not that imaginative when it comes to foreign affairs, and particularly the Cold War. He's just a member of the Cold War consensus. Um, and I, I, you know, that this, this idea, and actually, this is something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, like, when do you think that this consensus view that you know we we remember, so in terms of pol- politics, when we talk about the Cold War consensus, this idea that okay, we can fight over all these domestic policies, but when it comes to the Cold War, Democrats and Republicans, Independents, Dixocrats, whatever, we turn in the faces one against the Soviet Union. Um, how is it? Was that how it was, or is there more complexity? I given the given the really vicious fights that take place over America's relationship with the Soviet Union, with communist China, after it comes into existence, with the, the communist world more widely. I mean, there is a consensus whether you're conservative or liberal or democrat or republican or racist, that, that America must face up to the threat of the Soviet Union. But there's still, again, that hides the, the fissures and fractures and all the, the problems, you know, that, that come from that. You know, there are, you know, serious questions surrounding, you know, 1949, when the People's Republic of China comes into existence when the communists win the civil war against the American-backed nationalists. Although, the American backing for the nationalists was won the wane long before uh, they actually lose the war because of their incompetence and corruption and Jiang Jishi's poor leadership and all of these kind of things. Thankfully, the United States never going back a similar power in Asia um, and try and win a war there. No, 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 no. That's, that's, they're, they're, they're done, done with involvement in, in, in conflict in Asia. Uh, but there's still this, you know, problematic disputes when Korea emerges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about there's, there's still deba- well, there's still debate over what should America do. You have your extreme hawks in the military, in the administration, and in Congress who were like, let us drop the atomic bomb on well, some of them are saying, let's drop the atomic bomb on North Korea, that'll end the war. Then you get your even more extreme ones who are saying, no, actually, it's China's fault. Let's drop the bomb on Beijing. And the other one's like, let's... And then you get your extreme end, which is like, let's drop the bomb on Beijing and Moscow, because we really know what's happening here. 
Yeah, I, I want to actually push you on that further because I find that really interesting in terms of, you know, I really in a future episode I really want to get into the idea of historical memory when we talk about how America gets into Vietnam, but I find it really interesting that here you have the end of World War II has officially been ended by America dropping two atomic weapons. Mm. How much of a temptation is that for all leaders in the United States over the next few years to go, well, we can just end the war again because we have the technology? So that debate is bound up in politics, morality, ethics, race, all sorts of different things to do with it. By the time you get to the war in Korea, though, there's been an interesting turnabout that the Truman administration has to a certain extent quite successfully managed to push for a level of public acquiescence. Mm-hmm. Now here is a sort of Cold War consensus that aside from a few dissenting voices that okay we might dislike the idea of the atom bomb but it's our line of defence mm-hmm. against Soviet so supporting you know rearmament and strengthening of the atomic arsenal and all of these kind of things there's a general consensus behind that. There are dissenting voices most notably religious figures, uh, have deep qualms of the atom bomb. Uh, African Americans, alongside the emerging uh, civil rights movement, the, the heroic stage of the civil rights movement as we recognise it, as Vincent Ntondi and other historians have shown, there is genuine African American resistance, often on grounds of it. this kind of massive armament takes money away from important social programmes, uh, but also because of the race aspect. It seems that the only threats, the you know, the, the only people that are ever threatened with the atomic bomb are really non-white people. Mm. It's going to be used in Asia, and this is so. This is where we come round to Korea, where Truman has a deep-seated aversion. He, he talk, Truman talks a kind of fire and fury kind of thing, but in private, he is really, really deeply conflicted about the atom bomb and having made that decision to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And there is a huge amount of debate surrounding the role of race in the atom bomb in Korea and after as well. You get figures like the Indian leader, Jawaharlal Nehru. He's saying, this is a white man's weapon for use against Asians. That's what it looks like. So, you know, there's a lot of debate surrounding this, although there is a consensus that the atomic bomb is central to American military strategy in terms of the Cold War. Yeah, and I think also as well, thinking about 48, you know, when the year that Johnson wins this uh, stolen election, the, I think it's also a good time to consider what's going on with the political parties in the United States to set this up for our listeners mm. to understand, because this is, you know, stuff we'll come to when we discuss the 1960s. In 1948, you see that so the, I mean, the Democratic Party have, since Roosevelt wins in 1932, pretty much dominated. The, the Republicans win back Congress in 1946, I believe. Um, and but in the night, but in 1948, Dewey wins the presidency. <laughs> or does he? Or does he? Uh, uh, um, and obviously, the, the famous, famous picture with Harry Truman. But essentially, one of the, the biggest stories in 1948 is the Democratic Party, which is Breaking up. I mean, they have a convention where you know you have the the Dixiecrats storm out of the convention, mm-hmm. um, so the South is getting restless because Truman has supported a, a pro civil rights plank. Just to be clear, Dixiecrats, Southern segregationist Democrats. Yeah, yeah. Um, of which Johnson is not one, uh, um, uh, at least not part of the Dixiecrats anyway. Um, and they run out in Strom Thurmond, storms out, and he leads that party. 
then you have Henry Wallace on the left of the party for Franklin Roosevelt's mm. former vice president before Truman he storms off and has his own party on the left to, to run and then you've got Truman trying for the love of God to win another term after all this um, versus the Republican nominee as well and Thomas Dewey who was expected to win the governor of New York seen as popular governor of New York middle of the road guy thought he'd cruise the victory obviously Truman does his whole running against the Republican do-nothing Congress, and Dewey runs a terrible campaign, and Truman uh, has, has, has that lovely picture. So the, the party's in a bit of a state of flux at this point. Um, the Republicans are also arguing between each other over whether they should accept the New Deal and much of the welfare state that was passed by Franklin Roosevelt. Guys like Dewey support that. And then the right-wingers who... Like Robert Taft, for example, who are, who are against accepting most of the New Deal. Robert Taft, Mr. Democrat, conservative, as he's known at um, And also some of them are still uncomfortable with America having this internationalist position um, and are still harbour some isolationist tendencies um, towards the world going forward. Um, but, you know, as we're outlining, it was maybe the worst election ever to win because obviously in 1949 you have the quote-unquote loss of China you have the Korean War against going into... Well, June, that's June 1950. You have the Soviet so atom bomb test in 1949. Yeah. And, and I mean, this era that we're going to go on, that we're, we're, we're going into, that Lyndon, John, Lyndon Johnson's about to become, he becomes Senate Minority Leader when he comes to the Democrats, um, and then Senate Majority Leader when the Democrats retake the control of the majority. Um, this is right in the era of McCarthyism. Mm. Um, a, a real time of fear in American society, the, the second Red Scare, as we've discussed before. Um, and driven by figures, that, I mean, McCarthy's merely the kind of the, 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 almost the public figurehead, but I mean, the most important anti-communist of the era, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, who's feeding information to McCarthy and is, you know, people are being persecuted in government service and all that kind of thing. So I think in the background of this all, the Cold War is a hugely important, however you define it, this fear of what's out there in the world is important. And it's all, if we're going to be talking about in later episodes about Johnson's relationship with the war in Vietnam, this is also, it's really important point to make that this period also sees the, the real beginning of this Cold War mass killing, which Vietnam is part of. It forms part of an arc through Asia into the Middle East. Almost all of the, the major Cold War deaths happen in this particular arc, as the historian Paul Thomas Chamberlain has pointed mm. out, from the Korean Peninsula, down through through China, the Korean Peninsula, through Vietnam, up into South Asia, and then into the Middle East, ending up in, in the Lebanon in the 1980s. So Korea, in terms of the number of deaths, over 2 million Koreans die uh, in the Korean War, is crucially important, uh, because they, we have a precursor there to what happens in Vietnam. So, while this is all going on in the background, you know, in America in the 1950s, you have, you know, increasing suburbanization, you know, the rise of predominantly, you know, white suburbs, almost a hollowing out of cities as, with this idea of white flight that many historians, such as Ken Cruz, have talked about before. The affluent society. The affluent society. There's more cars, televisions, refrigerators, all sorts of radios, all sorts of consumer goods available. So in this era of, on one hand, you have the threat of the Cold War, increasing threat of nuclear Armageddon as weapons advance and become more powerful and more complex. 
But you also have this so-called affluent society. And in this, you have Lyndon Johnson in the Senate. Now, Robert Carroll, who has written this vast biography. Tome, indeed. A tome, multiple tomes. One of the, one of those volumes is called Master of the Senate. So what is he talking about there? And how does, if he is such a thing, how does Lyndon Johnson become Master of the Senate? So essentially what Carroll was getting at is the fact that the Senate, in his argument, somewhat justifiable argument, doesn't really work most of the time. The sovereign archaic institution was created by the founders that often is very inefficient and doesn't actually function correctly. Um, and was is often just a roadblock to passage of, of le- the, the passage of legislation. Um, particularly due to the, the, the sort of seniority way that it used to operate. And that, and, and that tended to favour Southerners. Because in the South, once you were elected, you tended to get elected again and again and again because it was a one-party state because the Democrats just won every single election. Um, uh, and what Johnson does is he actually goes in and, and smashes up the seniority system a bit, um, but while also not managing to really, really annoy the Southerners who, who control the power because he spent ages sucking up to them um, and making them think that you know, like his two sort of political mentors are two of the key figures, you know, Sam Rayburn, who's the Speaker of the House, a famous Texan, uh, and Richard Russell, uh, who's a, is a famous Georgia senator and one of the key obstacles to any civil rights legislation. He was a, he was a sort of master of Senate minutia and knew how to, you know, block anything and get the South to unite against any civil rights measures. And obviously in the 1950s, we're getting more and more ground swells of pressure um, from below to, to get those civil rights measures. So basically, Johnson is kind of interesting. Master of the Senate, yeah, in a sense. He manages to get it to work. You know, things get done. He, he works, he actually has a great relationship dovetailing with Eisenhower. But he doesn't, if you look at what's passed in the 50s, well, that, that, there's not really... That's, what, that's what I was going to ask. What, are there any significant legislative achievements that you can point to? So if you're being generous, the Civil Rights Act of 1957, it's not a good piece of law, not a good piece of legislation, because it's got all sorts of, you know, loopholes built in. Or more than it lacks mechanisms to, to enforce... You know the sort of, the and, and this is this is this is to pacify southern interests, is it? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, so Johnson is is playing two sides at the same time. So he sort of passes this legislation partly because, as I've said, he is in sympathy with with the goals of civil rights. Partly because he is now thinking about running for president, and he can't look like a southerner. He needs he needs northern liberals not to hate. Not the right. for all of Johnson's life, maybe apart from six months while he's passing the Great Society or suspicious of Lyndon Johnson. Um, and, but he also says to the Southerners, look, just let me pass this bill because a lot of them want him to be president. They like the idea of having a Southerner in the White House. And so he says, you know, let's pass this legislation. But they basically gut it of any effective mechanisms to, to actually enforce the civil rights um, that are contained within the bill. So, but the reason that it's important is because it's the first Civil Rights Act since the Reconstruction Acts um, after the Civil War. So it's sort of it's showing that we can do this. You know, you can pass a Civil Rights Act. You know, 100 years have gone, almost 100 years have gone. Mm. So it's 
progress, it's not great progress, but Johnson's argument to Liberals was, look, don't worry, we'll come back and do this again. They do come back in 1916, they write an even worse piece of legislation, but at least you've sort of got the ball rolling. Aside from that, there's no great... Well, I mean, I, I would argue one of the most important pieces of legislation of the era, and again, this goes back to my interest in the Cold War, is the National Defence Education Act okay. of 1958, which supercharges American science and academia in the service of the Cold War. That suddenly this vast government funding is made available, mainly because on October 4th, 1957, Sputnik 1 goes into orbit, a bleeping tin ball circles the world, and in the United States, people, oh my god, communists in space, we're underneath a red umbrella, this is a disaster, and the Eisenhower administration is, well, clearly we're falling behind in terms of science, so let's flood science and universities and government money, and really supercharge the... Uh, you know, the, the scientific establishment, which in some ways actually does and leads to many kind of great achievements and discoveries later on uh, in the Cold War. So perhaps not an era without, you know, yeah. major legislative achievement. But I mean, if you look at it compared to maybe the 30s or the 60s, 60s. And, and things like that, you know, it, it, it pales in comparison. Basically, Lyndon Johnson became the master of the Senate he wanted, essentially. He was, you know, and you have the famous stories about the Johnson treatment and, uh, and all that kind of thing as well. Um, so Johnson is in a position of considerable power. What's his role within the Senate? What is his title? Senate Majority Leader. So he's the Senate Majority Leader. He is Mitch McConnell of his he day. He is the Mitch McConnell of his day. Uh, so we move towards the end of the Eisenhower era. And you start, people are starting thinking about the presidential election of 1960. Oh, yeah. Johnson's entire life is wanting to be president. And he makes no bones, but he tells people this all the time. And, um, and he, but he, he, he sort of, he campaigns for it in a terrible way. Like, he, he just, he looks at all the Democratic contenders that were out there, and he, and he looks at him, he's like, oh, he's rubbish. He's got no chance. Looks at Kennedy, John Kennedy at this point, um, who, who's, who's also a senator, but he's done almost nothing in the Senate. Kennedy's incredibly ill for most of his Senate career, so he's, he's away from the Senate most of the time, and, um, and when he's there, he's not really, he makes the odd good foreign policy speech, but aside from that, he's doing nothing. So Johnson just kind of looks at him as a scrawny, you know, ill, like he says some really mean things about, like, Kennedy's health and stuff, and he, just, he doesn't, he doesn't view him as a threat whatsoever. So, Johnson, one of the things he does is he basically says, he almost tries to run, you know, like presidents back in the day would, 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 be unbecoming of me to run. To, yeah, I, we know, don't campaign for ourselves, yeah, yeah, all yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he says, no, I need to stay here and tend the Senate, because the American people will, will see how important I am, that I have to stay here. If I'm not here, then this thing falls apart. So, I'm not, and, and also, and, and Carol is quite good on this, he goes into deep, great detail on how Johnson basically has a fear of failure at this point, that, you know, if, if he reaches out for it, if he tries to seek the nomination and he fails, then he just can't stomach this idea of failure. So if I can just stop you there. So he is sort of not really actively campaigning. He's discounting major contenders for the Democratic Party nomination. He's perhaps making a few enemies here and there. Yeah. So remind me again. Who wins the Democratic Party nomination for the 1960 presidential campaign? John F. Kennedy. Kennedy. Right. So... How does it end up that Johnson, who has essentially discounted Kennedy as a lightweight, as someone who 
he doesn't think is going to make it. I should also point out here, he also, the blood feud between him and Robert Kennedy is pretty much, like, Robert Kennedy already hates him. Well, we'll, we'll, so we'll come on to that in a moment. Well. How is it that Lyndon B. Johnson is selected as running mate to John F. Kennedy? John F. Kennedy needs to win Texas. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. That's the simplest explanation in American political history. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, like, and, and, I, and I think this is a good time as well, you know, I brought what's happening with the parties here. You know, people always associate um, the, the shift in party allegiances, the South's allegiance to the 1960s, mm. the Civil Rights Act, and the Federal Rights Act, and they go, well, stuff you Democrats, um, you, you civil rights-loving, horrible people, uh, we're going to go with the Republicans. Um, and Richard Nixon says, law and order, and boom, Southern strategy, happy days, here we go. Um, but You've already had a bleeding uh, going on. Eisenhower wins quite a lot of southern states. He wins Texas. Um, and so for a Democrat to win the White House, they need to win back parts of, of the South because they're not as strong in, as in, in the North. This is, this is, you know, in big industrial cities are much more toss-up states um, like, you know, New York and Pennsylvania and all that than they are to, than, oh, Pennsylvania really was, sorry, I take that back. Like, but New York and California and all that, they're all toss-up states back mm. then. You know, um, and so the, the the calculation is they need to make the South solid again. So and it was Johnson can win Texas. It was the Kennedy campaigns. It was it was purely a tactical calculation. Otherwise, it makes no real sense. Uh, there's no real other explanation. So how does it happen? Because given the fact that John F. Kennedy's brother and confidant Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. as you've already pointed out, hates Lyndon Johnson. And does Lyndon Johnson hate him? Is it this reciprocal uh, hatred that they have? There's such an imbalance in the power between the two just now, with Johnson's a Senate majority. Yeah. Kennedy was like a Senate aide. You know, he was a Senate aide for Joseph McCarthy, yeah. for instance. Um, but, uh, so I know he, he's just sort of a little, as Johnson would describe him, a little pissant at this point. Why do they hate each other? Uh, so, they are the same person from very different backgrounds. That would be my thing. They're both ruthless. They're, they're both good sort of dual personalities in that they're known for being incredibly ruthless but also having this other side to them. Um, and this, a softer side and this side that favours the underdog because they both view themselves as the underdog. Um, and, but whereas Johnson is from Dirt, Texas Hill Country with the, all the uncouthness um, that he brings with him uh, and Kennedy is from, you know, pretty much, you know, Massachusetts royalty yeah. um, and, and all the, the urbane, you know, decorum and whatnot. That all the best schools, best universities. Yeah, yes, so, yeah. so, I mean, I think they're basically the same person from a different, different background. So Kennedy just squeaks the victory over Richard Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. And this is the last we ever hear of Richard Nixon. Yeah, no, thankfully, you know, you won't have Nixon. To kick around anymore. anymore. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, just squeaks it. It's something like a tiny, tiny margin of victory. One of those tiny, tiny margins of victory is in Texas. And, yeah, there's some shady stuff was going on in Texas. I mean, there's nothing conclusive, but... Uh, it's Johnson back there ballot stuffing again. Oh, yeah, yeah, that stuff was going on. Yeah, like Republicans sued... Um, but of course it was Democrats that controlled Texas at the time. And therefore, them, so. so thrown out. Um, and obviously, similarly, Illinois was, was similarly close and there's been a lot more focus on Illinois 
um, and what was going on in Cook County, i.e. Chicago, mm. and, and the, the mayor there, uh, Mayor Daly, and his uh, canary. Yes. So, I mean, there's a reason Richard Nixon was very bitter for the rest of his life. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that he would have definitely won, but I think there is a possibility. Like, So, once did. in the White House, so as part of the executive, the Kennedy brothers, I mean, they're very close. John Kennedy looks to Robert Kennedy as, as one of his closest advisors. I take it this means that Johnson's effectively sidelined in this period. Oh, yeah, Johnson's a miserable vice president. Um, he's, um, he, he tries all these things to gain power. Like, he tries to go back to the Senate and say, like, essentially, I mean, it's a lot more complicated, but essentially goes, right, so I'm vice president, can I still run the Senate? Like, <laughs> he basically turns up as if nothing's changed, and they're like, uh, no, 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 and that, that's kind of, again, there's this little document called the Constitution. Um, and uh, who's, who's Senate Majority Leader after Johnson uh, leaves? Mike Mansfield is a really sort of um, agreeable go-along to get along, softly spoken guy, so Johnson sort of uses him. He's to try and get this power in balance. He was like, oh yeah, that sounds okay. And then like all the old sort of southern bills, like, you know, the, as they were called, the, who, were, who were very strict constitutionalists. And even if they liked Johnson, they were just like, nah. Sorry, right? So does Johnson get to do anything as vice president? Is he, or is he just this cipher? He heads a space commission um, and he heads uh, civil rights. He, so he basically inherits a job that Richard Nixon had before him. Richard Nixon being Dwight Eisenhower's vice president. And he is basically about enforcing equal opportunity in federal contracts. Um, but neither of these bodies have any power whatsoever. Um, and Although, so, interestingly, this kind of relates back to what we're talking about the National Defence Education Act. Because, you know, NASA was one of the beneficiaries mm-hmm. of that in terms of, like, boosting its funding and prestige and capabilities in terms of competing with the Soviets on a sci- on the scientific Cold War, the space race Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Johnson's kind of, you know, there's some interesting kind of representations of Johnson, the, uh, the great film about the early days of the space race, the right stuff mm-hmm. about the Mercury astronauts, well, based on Tom Wolfe's uh, book. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson is in that, uh, you know, sitting in smoky rooms listening to these scientists he distrusts, talking about kind of why the Soviets are ahead and all these, these kind of things. You know, and the, the, their answer is kind of like, you know, I thought we had the best Germans. And they just go, well, I think their Germans are better than our Germans. You know, like, and then there's Werner von Braun is kind of like, well, we need to do this and all this, this kind of thing. And Johnson being, you know, a key figure in, in all of that. Yeah, no, well, I mean, the, yeah, so I mean, uh, his time in the vice presidency, he has very little power by purpose. Like, Kennedy doesn't want him having any power. There's all, there's always this thing, you know, John F. Kennedy's terrible at getting legislation through Congress, and there's the idea, well, why don't you use Lyndon Johnson's skills? But that would create a whole set of problems for Kennedy, notably, because then, you know, Johnson could decide what he would want to pass and what going on. So, uh, it, there was a bit of a clash going on there, but essentially Johnson becomes this mocked figure. And there's a famous article um, that's written called Whatever Happened to Lyndon Johnson? Because, like, you know, in Washington circles, he just sort of disappeared. And because the Kennedys had brought this whole, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're president, you sort of bring a whole ethos to Washington. Mm. And you're and so obviously, you know, you had the urbane cocktail parties, you know, Jackie Kennedy and, and, and John Ke- and the Glamour. And, and Kennedy, Kennedy's surrounded by all his whiz kids. Yeah. And having you know, McNamara and, like, Rusk and... Rostow and 
Bundy and all these kind of figures who are yeah. these kind of these Johnson defense the intellectuals and everything. Yeah. Johnson something they had quite in common with Nixon and hate and that sort of side of things but this brings me on to I want to talk um, of what I always wanted to talk at length on the podcast at some point with you about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis um, because we've had we've had informal conversations about it because you know lo and behold historians have crap history conversations <laughs> when they're at the pub but and you so the Cuban Missile to link it to Johnson Johnson is essentially, essentially throughout the Cuban Missile Crisis is quite hawkish. He's one of the guys saying, no, we should just bomb or we should invade Cuba. We should sort this out. So first of all, but I want to talk about how the world avoids nuclear catastrophe in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I want to do it in no more than five minutes. Okay. Are we, are we good in that? We yeah, that's fine. We can, do it. we can do it in two minutes. Okay, so I don't want to go into too many of the details. I mean, I, presumably most people know the rough contours of the Cuban Missile Crisis of the Soviet Union sending these nuclear warheads to an island. Castro's Cuba, communist Cuba, essentially, that is, what, five? How many miles? 90 miles from the coast of Florida. 90 miles from the coast of Florida. its closest point. So, a big threat. US discovers this, the photographs, crisis commences. You think, essentially, you said to me before that, you think that the, while Kennedy... The Kennedys will negotiate rather than doing these hardline things that the army's telling them to do, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are telling them to do, the War Hawks in Congress are telling them to do, his own advisors are telling mm-hmm. him to do. The, the Kennedy brothers, through death skill, through uh, establishing correspondence with Nikita Khrushchev, somehow managed to avert nuclear crisis. Kennedy gets a huge bump in popularity. What a president, so insightful. You think there's more Okay, so a bit of, bit, of, bit of background to all of this. It's important to place this in context that we think of nuclear war and the Cold War as being you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles. You can fire a missile from Wyoming and hit Moscow. Now, when the Cuban Missile Crisis takes place, we are in the very early days of the intercontinental ballistic missile. The majority of the American and Soviet nuclear forces are founded in bombers. There's a limited number of very long-range missiles on either side. And the Soviet ones especially are desperately unreliable. However, both sides have a lot of what are called medium-range ballistic missiles or intermediate-range ballistic missiles. So missiles that can fire to a range of between 500 and 1,500 or so miles. Now, not much good for an attack in the United States and the Soviet Union. Good in Europe if you're firing them from Eastern Europe into Western Europe or Western Europe into Eastern Europe. But not much use to attack the continental United States unless you have a platform from which you can launch these missiles, in that case, Cuba. But that is not the only calculation. that there is The reasons Khrushchev places the missiles in Cuba is are complex and they're still the subject of a lot of debate. One of the, one of the most important reasons is actually to defend Cuba from American invasion. Because it's already been a Bay of Pigs in April 1961, under Kennedy, planned under Eisenhower. And. Which is when essentially America tries to use expat Cubans to invade the. Invade, trained in Guatemala to invade Cuba. Absolute disaster. Complete disaster. Uh, Humiliation for the Kennedy administration, for the CIA, all that thing. But one of the reasons is that, and a very powerful reason, is that he wants to defend Cuba against the threat of American invasion. Another one is to support the Cuban Revolution and his affection for Castro himself and all that kind of thing. There's also the domestic context of it. 
Khrushchev is under pressure from within the Soviet system to demonstrate strength and leadership and all of these things. And this is a way of doing that because there have been a number of setbacks. The Soviet Union is also trying to appeal to decolonizing third world states and needs to be seen to be kind of strong and determined and able to stand up against the United States. So there's a whole big kind of calculus of stuff that comes into the so-called 13 days of it. Now, the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis is a bit of a misnomer because actually, you know, the period of the crisis goes into 19, late 1961, early 1962 and extends out beyond it into late 62, into early 63. But strictly speaking, these 13 days from when the American reconnaissance planes take photographs and go, oh my God, there's nuclear missiles in Cuba. Kennedy goes, oh my God, there's nuclear missiles in Cuba. And then on 22nd of October, he goes to the American people, oh my God, there's nuclear missiles in Cuba. In a much more restrained and calm way, trying to kind of make sure people don't go nuts uh, at the thought of this. And there is the teleprinter negotiations between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Khrushchev is alternately sober and drunk under huge amounts of pressure. And what comes out the other end is a deal that, a secret deal that the United States, well, part of it isn't secret. The United States won't invade Cuba, they'll agree not to invade Cuba, the Soviets will take the missiles out. The secret part of the deal is that the Americans will, will draw, withdraw intermediate range Jupiter missiles from their bases in Turkey. Which are already getting a bit outmoded anyway, but that's the secret part. In public, it looks like Kennedy wins. And it looks like Khrushchev loses. And this causes a lot of problems. China, for example, which is split from the Soviet Union, the Sino-Soviet split, this fracturing of the communist world. Mao Zedong attacks Khrushchev over the issue of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's shown weakness, he's a terrible leader, blah, blah, blah. And this further exacerbates the split between the Soviet Union and the communist world. Robert Kennedy, in the initial stages of the crisis, is actually quite hawkish. He is quite... On the, yeah, invade, which would be a disaster. There'll be, a, you know, invading Cuba is going to lead to nuclear war. It's going to be an absolute disaster. The only way out is negotiation. But there are so many times when war could have, the, the, the threat, as I've always said, and so many scholars say, the threat with nuclear war is not someone deliberately pushing this mythological button. It's the threat of stumbling or sleepwalking into an escalating nuclear war. And this is where the thing about luck, I don't mean luck as in just blind happenstance, about the right people at the right time making the right decisions, and not the people at the very top, but the people at the bottom. So for example, the uh, Soviet commanders on the ground in Cuba, we didn't know this, nobody knew this at the time, they had authority to use tactical nuclear weapons in the event of an American invasion. Kennedy didn't know that. Johnson didn't know that. But the Soviet commanders on the ground could have started a, a nuclear war. Mm. Vasily Arkhipov, the second in command of one of the Soviet submarines monitoring the American blockade. There's an argument on board the submarine about whether they should launch their nuclear armed torpedo at American warships because they think they're being attacked with depth charges. Arkhipov is like, no, we're not doing that. I'm not going to be party to this. If he had been a different person, a nuclear torpedo could have been launched at American warships, and that's it. There are so many situations where it relied on the right people making the right decisions at the right times, and not those right at the top of the scale. That's luck. We're very lucky that in any one of these any one of these situations, the wrong move could have kicked off 
the escalation into nuclear war. So that's why it was luck. It wasn't the, the firm leadership of Kennedy or the, the drunken swithering, as we'd say in Scotland, of Nikita Khrushchev. It was the, the luck of the right people at the right place at the right time making the right decision and that decision not being to escalate things. Yeah. And, uh, and but the, 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 the take away from the Cuban Missile Crisis as well is that Kennedy just gets, you know, his popularity goes through the roof. You know, he's already quite a popular president. He's, he looked weak after Bear Pigs and, you know, he's like the, the sort of young president. Um, the worries over that, but Cuban Missile Crisis cements him as. What does that mean? It makes him, he comes out of it in public, the hero. He comes out the winner. And it also helps to, I mean, it effectively kills anti-nuclear protest for nearly two decades. Mm-hmm. Because you get into the stage of like, people go, oh, well, we're a bit close to the brink there. You have the limited test ban treaty in 1963. You have moves towards nuclear non-proliferation. So, the hotline, and also the Vietnam War starts siphoning protest away from nuclear issues. So you see this decline. But yeah, Kennedy comes out the big hero. Well, that, that, that was a bit longer than five minutes, but I was enjoying it. Yeah, Well, let's crack on to the end of this episode. Yep. So, into 1963, there's some important changes within the Kennedy administration. Because at long last, it looks like the administration might actually be paying some attention to one of the most pressing issues for America domestically and in terms of its appearance to the outside world. And that is, of course, the issue of civil rights. Mm-hmm. So what happens in 63 with the Kennedy administration and civil rights, and is Johnson involved in this? Yeah, well, I think I think we maybe go back a wee bit and talk a bit about civil rights um, and what's been going on. And I mean, obviously, one of these days I'd love to do one where we can look at all the grassroots side of things mm. and really get into depth. But, you know, I mean, we, you remember back when we first did this podcast and we were teaching the American history course at Edinburgh, and one of the... the Films we used to assign was, was Freedom Riders, or, or at least I used to assign. Yes, yes. Freedom Riders, so did I, yeah. which, which takes place in 1861, and is you know these this group of Freedom Riders going through the south to test whether thing to test whether like things like bus terminals have been desegregated mm-hmm. and they've been promised by this point, and, and obviously they had huge violence and so and there's a lot of a lot of issues going on there. But one of the things is the Kennedy administration at that point really just sort of used this as. We have to deal with this issue. Can't be bothered with this. Like, we don't really, kind of, I don't want to annoy the South. I, I've never really met that many black people, so I don't really care about their cause. And, and eventually they sort of hammer out a compromise, and, you know, this is said to be one of sort of Robert Kennedy's awakenings, and, and he's the Attorney General, so, you know, it matters, the Chief, you know, Minister of Law in America, so it does matter whether he cares about it, but, and then in 1962, you have the, the case of James Meredith, um, who becomes the first black Mississippian to try and enroll in the, the University of Mississippi. Um, and for having the nerve to do such a thing is, uh, is faced, you know, with, with huge amounts of intimidation. And the Kennedy administration then have to hammer out a sort of deal to get Meredith into the university, which they eventually successfully comply. Uh, an interesting point to note is that Lyndon Johnson is not asked to be any part of that situation despite being a southerner uh, and, and many of had some sort of expertise to draw. But 1963, and obviously there's loads of other protests going on at this point. Um, then 1963, you're going to have the Birmingham campaign of Martin Luther King, when he writes his famous letter from the Birmingham jail mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and whatnot. But Kennedy's mulling over what to do. And so 
he brings Johnson in and asks for advice in this case. And, and Johnson, you know, had one of the few things he was animated about when he was vice president was when he got to talk on civil rights issues. For example, there's a dinner that he's invited to go to to Florida in Florida, and he finds out it's going to be segregated and there'll be no black people there. And he says, "Well, I'm not coming unless you can desegregate." And the the this dinner, then I'm just not going to show up. So eventually, they manage to desegregate the 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 and he goes and gets remarks. And then he also, um, in 1863, which is 1963, sorry, which is the 100 year anniversary of of Lincoln uh, giving the Gettysburg Address, um, he goes to to Gettysburg to mark this occasion. Mm. And you know, in in one of the sentences, he says, "One one hundred years ago, the slaves were freed. One hundred years later." The Negro remains in bondage to the colour of his skin. The Negro today asks justice. And then sort of goes on to say that we can no longer ask them to be patient. You know, and that's, that, that for the time that is a quite a racially liberal stance, especially for a summer. And so, so Johnson sort of signalling where he is on civil rights. And a lot of the Kennedy administration thought he was just a typical southerner who, you know, was anti-civil rights, but they're seeing his behaviour and seeing, okay, no, maybe he has a true believer in this cause. And so, so, essentially, you have Johnson, if anything, ahead of Kennedy when it comes to, to civil rights. Um, and also, I mean, coming back to the foreign policy context, another reason for the evolving attitude within the Kennedy administration is the way that civil rights is playing out as a, a foreign relations issue. That's Mary Dudziak's. Mary, I mean, Mary Dudziak's absolutely crucial book that came out in 2000, uh, Cold War Civil Rights. Still an immensely valuable piece of work. Uh, a great bit of scholarship. And it's, the Soviets have been propagandizing about this. And the Chinese as well have been propagandizing about race relations in America for a long, long time. Absolutely making hay out of it. And you know, the Kennedy administration is trying to appeal to newly independent sub-Saharan African nations mm-hmm. to be on their side of the Cold War. Yeah. And while, you know, they're, while they're beaming footage into them of you know, the Birmingham protests. And, but, and I mean, you know, non, cannons are being used, uh, no, cannons being used non, non-white uh, diplomats yeah. are being refused service in the United States. They're being segregated. They have to, they're not allowed to stay in the same hotels and everything. And they're going back to their national capitals and saying, Look what's going on over there. Do we really want to be allied with these people that treat those with, yeah. you know, a different coloured skin in this manner? So it's, I mean, it's also a huge foreign yeah, policy issue. DC is a southern city. city yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and Johnson, one of the things he always talks about at this point was the fact that his, he had a cook in Texas and he said, like, whenever she drove to anywhere in Texas, she couldn't stop in any restroom. She didn't have to pee on the side of the road during a long journey because of the, of the facilities. But yeah, so essentially, you know, civil rights is coming to the fore. And, and, and Johnson's asked his opinion and he tells Kennedy not to send the civil rights bill to Congress until he's got all the other stuff, this whole new frontier idea, Kennedy's new frontier, it's his version of the New Deal, you know, um, until he's got this legislation through and then send the civil rights bill so the Southerners can't hold them hostage. But he says what he needs to do, which he hadn't done, is go and make a moral case go to the American people and as a leader speak to them and make it a moral issue rather than uh, a, a very much you know, this political legal issue that Kennedy was making it. And that's exactly what we'll return to in the second episode of this series yeah. when we look at the dream mm-hmm. of the great society and of civil rights. Mm-hmm. But we obviously need to end almost where we began in our introduction. And that's with November 22nd, 
1963, when Kennedy is assassinated and Lyndon Johnson becomes president. Mm. He finally achieves his personal dream of becoming president of the United States of America. So what's he going to do next? How's he going to take all this forward? And in the next episode, that's what we're going to talk about. About the Great Society, about the genuine reform that Lyndon Johnson wants to bring to American society, and about the racial reform that he wants to bring to society in form in, in the form of this long-awaited federal action on civil rights. And now that we're in LBG's America, we can also get into some other fun stuff. Um, like the culture, the music, the change that was happening. Uh, you know, you have Dylan going electric at this point, and half of the crowd going yes, and you're like, uh-huh. booing and walking out. Um, you know, you have film changing at that time. Cinema is just completely transforming yep. from this mass appeal to these more niche films targeting all these different audiences. You know, the sixties is well and truly here, and uh, that's what we'll get into. And so we'll be talking about all of that in episode two of Lyndon Johnson's America: The Dream. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you very much and goodbye.